Well, good morning. Come on in and grab a seat. Grab a beautiful disinfected seat. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church, whether you are in this room or in one of the other rooms joining us. It is uh, uh, good to be here with you. Let me open us in a word of prayer, and then I'll let you know what our topic is this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to you through the Son and by the Spirit and confess that you're good and that we need help. We, uh, we ask for wisdom in this weird season. We thank you that though everything seems chaotic, that nothing is chaotic to you, that you are not disturbed, that you're never late, that you're never anxious, and so uh, we just ask that, uh, that you would help us rest and have that peace that surpasses all understanding. We thank you for this semester. We thank you for uh, everything that you have given us in your word, and we just pray that you would uh, help us believe it more and more. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. All right, well, welcome to Theological Equipping Class. As you know, we have been doing uh, political and social theology this semester. Today, we're gonna be going over freedom of speech and freedom of religion. So this is probably probably going to be the most legal constitutional lesson we have uh, this, uh, this year. I, uh, I don't have training in law, although I like to pretend that I do, like Michael Bluth from Arrested Development, so, but I sent my notes into a buddy of mine who's an attorney to, to double check it just to make sure I didn't say something uh, super dumb, and so uh, today we're going to talk about freedom of speech and religion. We're going to spend just a little bit of time up front talking about what the Bible would say on these topics, and then we're going to spend a lot of time looking at the First Amendment and asking the question, what what should we as Christians think about the First Amendment? How are we supposed to interpret this, etc.? Okay, so that's kind of the hope for this morning. So let's get into an intro first. Does the Bible give you freedom of speech and religion? We'll ask that question. And then we'll ask, how should we understand the freedom of speech and religion in the U.S. Constitution? Now, newsflash, uh, the law will allow you to do a lot of things that the Bible will not, okay? There are a lot of things that are not illegal, but they are immoral, whether that's adultery or abortion or uh, whatever. Just because something is legal doesn't mean that it is biblical. So we need to keep in mind that the law kind of gives you this, and then God's word kind of gives you this, gives you kind of a, uh, some smaller parameters. But first, let's just talk about freedom of speech in the Bible and uh, freedom of religion in the Bible. Let's start with freedom of speech. Summary, the Bible gives you freedom of speech, listen to this, in the sense that you have the right to discuss and debate ideas, to tell people they are in sin, to offend people and to teach what is true. So if by freedom of speech, do you mean those things I just mentioned? Yes, the Bible gives you that freedom. However, you do not have freedom of speech in the sense of being able to say whatever you want. Now, let me just read a bunch of passages and it's gonna convict all of us, okay? These passages are not just for you, they're for me, they're for all of us because we're sinners. Listen to this. Ephesians 5, 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Ooh, how we doing? How we doing on that one? I'll be honest with you, I'm not doing great. All right, I speak publicly for a living, so my mouth that pays the bills also gets me into trouble. Matthew 12, 36. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Ooh, again. Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Colossians 3, 8. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Matthew 15, 11. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. The Bible will say that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, okay? If you're on an airplane and you yell bomb and you get in trouble, you can't say, those were just my words. Those were not me. Because those words come from you. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know 
uh, how you ought to answer each person. That should be Twitter's life first, right? That should be uh, Facebook's life first, to always be kind and gracious in our speech. Well, here's the conclusion to that. We fail to control our tongue and we fail a lot. And if you think, not me, Zach, I have a pretty pure mouth. Let me read you some passages. James 3, 2. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Unless you are perfect, you break these commands just like I do, okay? There are no humans, save Christ, that can, uh, that can follow these commands completely. You cannot control the tongue, James 3, 8, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So, here's the bad news. We are all sinners, we have evil hearts, we say bad things we shouldn't say, and we will do so until we die, but thankfully Christ is gracious. Now, having said that, you can grow in holiness in your speech. You can learn to... Uh, to to curb that thing you're wanting to say. You can learn to bite your lip in traffic instead of saying what you're wanting to say. Uh, And so I say all that just to start off by saying, when it comes to freedom of speech, the Bible does not grant you freedom of speech in the sense that you can say whatever the heck you wanna say, okay? What it grants freedom of speech is the ability to talk about what's true. You can call somebody out in sin, You can debate somebody, kind of iron sharpening iron. You can have arguments. You can express ideas, these kind of things the Bible would defend, but you don't have the freedom of speech to teach false things. You don't have the freedom of speech to say whatever you want. The Bible's gonna put restraints on there even though those restraints may not be uh, in the law. Now let's talk about freedom of religion. This one will be even simpler. Let's ask this question. Does the Bible allow freedom of religion? The short answer is no, biblically. You do not have the right to believe any religion you choose, but you do have the right to disagree with other Christians on issues of conscience, what are called adiaphora issues, things that the Bible neither explicitly forbids or explicitly commands, and minor doctrines. Right? I can be friends with my Presbyterian brothers even though we disagree on things like infant baptism. Now listen to this next part. This is a helpful clarifier. This is a different question than whether or not Christians think the government should allow freedom of religion. So we as Christians all know that the Bible would say you must follow Christ, he is the only way. We have a whole lesson on the exclusivity of Christ and the Christian message if you wanna listen to that from previous weeks. So the Bible's very clear, there is no salvation outside of Christ, every other religion is a false religion, period, the end, do not pass go, do not collect $200, okay? That's a different question though than whether or not you think that the government should, have, uh, should allow freedom of religion, okay? So keep those things in mind. You can hold one and not hold the other or vice versa. So that's freedom of speech and religion in the Bible. We're not gonna spend most of our time there because I think most of you know that. I think if I asked you before you came into this lesson, hey, can you literally say whatever you wanna say? You would say no. And if I were to ask you, can you believe any religion you want? Is that cool with God? You would say no. So now let's get into the things that might be new to you. Let's talk about the constitutional legally stuff. The rest of this lesson will focus on the First Amendment. Here's the First Amendment for you. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble. That seems like an important word in 2020 with protest, that it should be peaceable, peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So we're gonna break it down. We're gonna take this kind of phrase by phrase and explain what this does and doesn't mean. We're gonna look at some case law. Hopefully you find this to be uh, helpful and not just super nerd boring. Number one, the government. So let's break it down. If we look at that first phrase there, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Don't get mad at what I'm about to say because it's true. The government cannot have an official religion nor promote only one religion over others. Is America a Christian nation according to the Constitution? According to the Constitution, it is not, okay? 
Don't get mad at me. I'm just literally reading the First Amendment to you, okay? Now, you need to understand this. You could say that America's a Christian nation in the sense that it was founded on a lot of Christian principles, in the sense that many of the founders of the country were Christians, not all of them. Some of them were deists and atheists and Unitarians and some other things, but some of them were legitimate Orthodox believers. But according to the Constitution itself, America is agnostic. According to the Constitution itself, the country does not have an official religion. So before you get really on your high horse about America is a Christian nation, the Constitution says that's not true in the very first line of the very first amendment, okay? So keep that, uh, keep that in mind. God doesn't have a nation that's his other than in the Old Testament when it's Israel. Once the gospel goes to all nations, there's Christ's kingdom and every other empire is pagan. Okay, so keep that in mind lest you think that we are super special. Uh, God has been gracious to us, but we are uh, to be a Christian and to be American. Those are not synonyms. Number two, the government cannot promote religion over non-religion or vice versa. What, this is, what, what, what the First Amendment is really doing is it's respecting freedom of worldview. So I've heard people say, well, it's freedom of religion, not freedom from religion. That's not true. You have the right in America. It is not illegal to be an atheist or something like that, okay? Now, a few interesting things here. Most U.S. political theory, so there, there's a lot of, you know, whether it's Montesquieu or some of these other thinkers that influence America's political system, hands down the philosopher who most influences America's political system is a guy named John Locke. He's not a great philosopher when it comes to metaphysics and some of these other things, but he's an excellent philosopher when it comes to political philosophy. And so most of U.S. political theory is based on his two treatises of government and his letter concerning toleration. Now, here's what's interesting with Locke's view of uh, freedom of religion. He did not think that it extended to atheism because his whole worldview is that there's a creator and we have these unalienable rights that we've been endowed with by our creator. So if you don't hold that, Locke did not think that the freedom of religion ex extended to atheism. The US does, but Locke, who's the US based their theories on, does not think that. Additionally, Locke didn't think that the freedom of religion extended to Catholics. Why? Because Catholics have their ultimate allegiance to a foreign power, the Pope in Italy. And so Locke said that that didn't count either. So just fun facts for you with John Locke. If you've never read him, he's a great guy to read on, uh, uh, on political uh, philosophy. Number three, you may believe any doctrines or dogmas you want. Okay, that's something important. I'm not saying you can't, again, biblically. I'm saying we're now talking just about the law. The, the law doesn't say that you only have to believe what's orthodox. The law will allow you to be a heretic, for example. So uh, you're, you may believe any doctrines or dogmas you want. Now listen to this next one. This one's interesting. You may practice religious action even in some cases where it is generally illegal. For example, churches were still allowed to use wine in communion during prohibition, okay? So because churches are protected by the First Amendment, there are, there are laws that are generally, sometimes there are things that are generally illegal for the general populace, but not illegal for the church. A great example of this right now is that Churches are not required in Texas to wear masks, even though you do have to wear them when you go to the grocery store and these other things. We get this kind of pass. Cornell Law School, a representative from the school says this, more importantly, the wording of state constitutions, so you've got U.S. Constitution and also state constitutions. State constitutions try to base their ideas, though, on the U.S. Constitution, suggests that free exercise envisions religiously compelled exemptions from at least some generally applicable laws. 
The free exercise clause not only protects religious belief and expression, it also seems to allow for some violation of laws as long as that violation is made for religious reasons. It's not saying you can break whatever law you want for your religion. That's not the idea. The idea is that there are some passes that churches and houses of worship get uh, when it pertains to some minor laws. Number five. The government cannot tax your religion so much that it precludes you from following it. So one of the things the First Amendment does is it protects churches, it protects people of whatever religion from having the government set up all these roadblocks, whether it's taxation, whether it's curfews, whether it's whatever, so that those people can still meet and they can still gather. But one of the things they can't do is tax your religion so much that it precludes you from actually following it. Number six, this is very important because I know so many of you out there are just wanting to do so many human sacrifices. Your freedom of religion does not extend to issues that physically harm other people. Okay, what our culture is trying to do is to say anytime you tell me truth that offends me, you've, you've hurt me. You've, your words are violence, although that's literally not the definition of violence. But uh, you cannot do your religion if it's hurting somebody else. I cannot say my religion requires cannibalism and allow, that's not allowed in the U.S. So notice, we don't have true freedom of religion where you could do whatever your religion was. There's always going to be boundaries on that freedom of religion. And in this case, you cannot harm other people with whatever religion you hold. Number seven, you do not have to belong to an official religion or denomination. So it's not like how in some countries after the Reformation, they would have a list of, you know, you can belong to this group, this group, or this group, and that's it. You don't have to have that in the U.S. If you want to start some weird denomination, some weird religion, and worship the lizard god Zorp or whatever, you can do so, okay? You and a bunch of buddies can get together and not kill people and believe whatever you want. The uh, First Amendment would allow you to do that. Number eight, this one's interesting. You must hold your religion with what is called sincere belief. For example, if you told people that a religious relic would heal them and made them pay for it and they died, you are only in trouble if you knew you were scamming them. So this is an interesting thing. So when Kenneth Copeland or whatever gets up at TBN and he like sneezes on a handkerchief during COVID season and he sells it and he's like, if you buy this handkerchief, it will heal you. And he sells it and someone thinks, I'm not going to the doctor. I have Kenneth Copeland's sneezed on handkerchief. This will heal me. And they die which they probably deserve, okay? And they die if he honestly thought it would heal them and he did not know he was scamming people, that is protected by the First Amendment, okay? You could still bring a suit, but there would this be this, uh, the, the burden of proof would be on you bringing that suit. Number nine, belief and practice are linked. You have the right not just to believe what you want, but to practice religious actions that are related to your belief. Okay, so the amendment's not just you have to sit in your room and think the thoughts you want. You have the right to practice it. You have the right to do baptisms and to take communion and to evangelize and to do the things that your religion requires you to do. And that's true with all religions, okay? That's true with all religions in the U.S. Now, here's what's unclear. Now, let me give a clarifier here. As I go through this list, I'm going to name a bunch of things that are unclear. I don't mean they're unclear to Christians. I don't mean they're unclear to believers. We know what we should do. What I mean is they're a little bit unclear regarding the law. This is where attorneys and stuff would debate each other. Let me give you a few of these related to this first part of the First Amendment. To what extent can you practice a religion that breaks the law? Okay, to what extent can you do this? So I'll give you an example from the UK. I know that's not under US Constitution, but I think it's a helpful example. If you're someone who's Sikh, right? Those are the guys with the turbans, okay? They're Sikh. It's a certain religion out of uh, a lot of people in India and some people in the Middle East are Sikh. Part of your religion requires, if you're a man, that you carry a knife, which is awesome, okay? 
Now, in the UK, you're not allowed to carry knives, okay? You're not allowed to carry knives. So there was this issue that came up a few years ago where they would not allow Sikhs to practice this part of their religion because they had to carry a knife. It was actually really weird. I saw that the mayor of London had tweeted out something like, if you're found having a knife, you'll absolutely be prosecuted because there's no reason for anyone to carry a knife. He said that after there had been this string of stabbings. And I thought, maybe you want to carry one to protect you from all the stabbings you just mentioned, right? So anyway, uh, it's kind of the, the gun control thing in the UK is just kind of knife control. And so uh, anyway, so the question is, is that a violation? Is that a violation? If you're part of some religion that requires that a man have a beard, there are several of those. And by the way, if Christianity's not true, probably one of those is. Okay, probably one of those is. And you're required to wear a mask and cover up that glorious beard. Could you say, hmm, freedom of religion violation, right? So how far does that extend when you say that sometimes religions can break the law? That's a gray area in the law. Number two, is the government establishing a religion by simply allowing religious leaders to use government facilities or recognizing that there is a majority religion in most areas? Is that actually establishing religion or not? Okay, what does it mean to establish religion? Number three, is removing Christian language from a courthouse or school protecting the religious liberties of other religions, or is it restricting the religious expression of Christians? That's a great question for our culture to ask. So if there's, you know, the Ten Commandments on the courthouse and someone says, we should remove that because of freedom of religion, you're like, wait a second, I think we should leave it there for freedom of religion. If someone else wants to put their laws up and pay the money, they can do that too. So the question is, which one is actually protecting freedom of religion? What if someone claims that your religion imposes on their freedoms? Does a Christian baker have to make a wedding cake for a gay wedding or for a Wicca celebration, which is a type of witchcraft, right? Number five, is one's religion harming someone else because telling them their lifestyle is wrong and it causes emotional damage? Also in quotes, okay? Is that hurting someone? So if you say you can practice your religion, but you can't hurt others, and you say, well, my religion demands that I tell people in sin that they're in sin. Well, that causes them stress, so now you can't do it. That would seem to be a violation of freedom of religion. Number six, how does freedom of religion work with kids? You ever wondered that? Well, thankfully, we have some Supreme Court precedent. Wisconsin versus Yoder, 1972. The court ruled that the Amish didn't have to send their kids to public schools. Was this a win for religious rights? Or was it actually an infringement on the rights of those kids who wouldn't be able to leave the Amish community or be equipped for a job in the real world? So here's what's difficult. Personally, as a pastor, I hold that parents should have the right to teach their kids whatever they want to teach them, okay? So I agree with Wisconsin versus Yoder. Here's where it gets really, really tricky. I've put an example here. What if a Satan-worshipping family, there are those, by the way, makes their four-year-old stand in the middle of a pentagram and say, hail Satan, before they will give him ice cream? If you're going to allow parents freedom to teach their kids whatever they want, what do you do with those that are in false religions that are actually mentally and emotionally abusive? What do you do in that case? Again, I'm not saying what should we as Christians think about it. I'm saying what should the law think about it? Number seven, uh, see if this seems relevant at all. During COVID-19, was it unconstitutional for the government to forbid, not merely recommend churches from meeting when the content, notice that, of their religion requires them to physically meet, not just hear sermons, and when the danger in assembling was a disease that killed less of 1% of those who even got it? You don't have to answer that here. Just think about it later. Maybe talk about it in your community group or over lunch, okay? Look at the next phrase here of, uh, of the First Amendment or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. So we just looked at freedom of religion. Let's look at freedom of speech, what that does and doesn't mean, okay? Notice a few things. 
First, number one, you have the freedom to express your views both verbally and in print. Okay, and this actually today, the courts have decided this extends to other types of media as well, whether it's online presence or an audio book or something like that. The idea is you have the freedom to express your thoughts, your ideas, and use different media to do so. Number two, some places allow more freedom of speech than others. For example, a public park uh, or a public forum, a sidewalk, public property, typically is gonna allow more speech, obviously, than private property, which is number three. People have a right to limit what you say on private property. A lot of people don't understand this, okay? So if you want to uh, say whatever you want, that's fine. You don't get to come into my house to do that. You don't get to do that on my lawn. You might get to do that on my sidewalk if you're not yelling at three in the morning, but you, uh, it's not that you have the right to say whatever you want anywhere. It's, uh, it's in public space. It's not in every private area. Number four. The government has a right to restrict you, not based on the content of what you say, but due to other what are called non-content factors, okay? Let me give you an example of what this means. The whole idea of the First Amendment is to protect you thinking and believing what you want and expressing your ideas. That's the whole point of it, okay? That's the point of the First Amendment. So what the government can do, they're not allowed, ideally they do this, but they're not allowed to to restrict the content of what you say, but they are allowed to deal with non-content factors. Here's what I mean. If you want to teach some weird religion on a public sidewalk, and kindly, when people walk by, give them a little flyer and try to explain your faith, you have a right to do that, and the government does not have a right to shut that down. That's content, okay? A non-content restriction is like this, though. Let's say that at three in the morning, I got a bullhorn and I started screaming by a bunch of people's homes that they need to repent, okay? The government could then restrict me because notice they're not restricting the content of what I'm saying. They're not saying you're not free to express your ideas. They're restricting the way I'm doing it, the non-content. What they're saying is I'm not restricting what you're saying. You can teach whatever weird view you want, but what I'm saying is you can't wake people up at three in the morning with a bullhorn. That'd be a non-content restriction. Everybody with me? Now, let me tell you why this distinction is really, really helpful and relevant. Right now in California, it's forbidden for churches to meet. You might have known John MacArthur's church is out there and uh, they've threatened, they find him, they've threatened to arrest him and all these kind of things. And what the, what, the, what the government is saying is by telling you you can't meet as a church, we're not restricting your content. You can still say whatever you want. You can say whatever you want online. You can say whatever you want individually in people's homes. You just can't have church service. That's what they're saying. Now, here's what MacArthur's attorneys are arguing, and I think MacArthur's attorneys are right. What they're saying is, wait a second, wait a second. The Bible commands us to meet together. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. So what the government is doing is an actual content restriction. They're not allowing someone to practice their religion as they see fit, and so that's a big debate that's going on based on this distinction between content and non-content, okay? By the way, John MacArthur, uh, in a hilarious thing, started off one of his church services by saying, welcome to the Grace Community, peaceful protest, right? So that way you can still meet as long as you're protesting, apparently. Number five, you cannot incite immediate crime. So freedom of speech does not extend to inciting immediate crime. For example, if you were to yell, let's riot, or yelling bomb on an airplane, Okay? Now, let me explain why that is. If you're yelling bomb on an airplane, you're not expressing your religious or political ideas, right? You're just trying to incite crime. Unless there is a bomb on an airplane and then it's not a crime, okay? Then it's no longer a crime if you're telling the truth in that sense. However, consider, I don't know how to pronounce this name, S-C-H-E-N-K, shank. Thank you, I would spell shank, S-H-A-N-K, like a regular person, but that's this guy's name. 
Schenck versus the United States, 1919. This case is really interesting because it seems to be a a huge violation of freedom of speech. This case said that an anti-war protester did not have a right to speak out against the draft. A man protesting the World War I draft was said to have violated the Espionage Act of 1917. So this is an interestingly weird decision by the Supreme Court. You have freedom of speech, but you can't incite crime. So there's this guy in, the 19, in 1919 protesting World War I, and uh, what they said is, by doing so, he's actually going to cause a lot of danger. He could potentially cause a lot of death because then we won't have people signing or you know, being drafted for the war and so they actually ruled against him, which is an interesting, uh, interesting case. Number six, you may not incite people to violence by using what are known as, quote, fighting words. Chaplinsky versus New Hampshire, 1942. The court decided that Chaplinsky, a Jehovah's Witness, could not call the town marshal curse words as it could incite fighting and ruin the public peace, okay? So again, In 2020, when there may or may not be protest, speech that would encourage violence is not protected by the First Amendment, okay? Signs that say, kill all the white people, not protected by the First Amendment, these kind of things, okay? So keep those things uh, in mind when it comes to the First Amendment. Number seven, obscenity is not protected by the First Amendment. Why? Because it doesn't restrict your content. You can still express your idea without cursing or whatever it might be, but obscenity is not protected by the First Amendment. Free speech that is obscene, that includes things like child pornography or sexual harassment, is not allowed, okay? Number eight, defamation. What is defamation? A false statement about another person that tends to damage the reputation of that person is not allowed, okay? So falsely, you know, saying false things about somebody to try to hurt them, that's not allowed because then you're not, again, it's not the content of your speech, you're using speech just to try to hurt somebody not to express your ideas. If they actually did it, it's no longer defamation, right? Number nine, commercial speech is not as protected as content-based speech like political or religious speech. Keep that in mind with certain ads and uh, advertisements. Number 10, this one's interesting. Other compelling interests, notice how generic that is, can overrule your freedom of speech legally. This would include elements of national security or a gag order to prevent a jury from being biased. So the government would say there are times that we can even restrict the content of your speech if doing so is to protect people in in, in an emergency. If doing so is for some immediate need where we need to restrict what you're saying. You think about this again, not to bias a jury or uh, elements of national security. I mean, there are times where like people will go on the news and they're showing where our troops are going to attack and the military's like, what are you doing? The people don't need to know this yet, let's attack and then we can tell the Iraqis or wherever where we're gonna be. Number 11, speech that is harmful to children is not protected, okay? Speech that is harmful to minors is not protected. And then number 12, mm, this is a good one. Let this one just wash over you. Someone being offended by the content of your speech does not void you having the right to say what you want. Freedom of speech is not the right not to be offended, but rather the right to offend. Our culture does not like that. There was a rally a few years ago at Yale University trying to get rid of the First Amendment because of that. Freedom of speech leads to people being offended. Yes, anytime you hold wrong views, when somebody gives you truth, you're gonna be offended, okay? The solution's not to get rid of them expressing truth, It's to stop holding the wrong view. Being right is not arrogant, being wrong is arrogant. Because being wrong celebrates a falsehood and refuses to repent when you're shown the truth. Okay, keep those things in mind. Now here's what's unclear, again, to our culture, not to Christians, but unclear to our culture. What if the government says something is a matter of national security? How high does the bar have to be before they can restrict your speech? 
Number two, listen to this one. What exactly is considered libel or slander? You think I know the definition of that. As culture changes, as culture changes, what gets considered libel or slander? Number three, what is the definition of, quote, hate speech? Does it apply to calling someone in a uh, homosexual relationship a sinner? Number four, the government can restrict obscene speech. What exactly is obscene speech? Okay, I'll tell you a story. This is not for shock value, but just to tell you what happens in our country. The Supreme Court does not have a solid definition on what counts as pornography that is allowed versus not allowed, of what is considered obscene pornography, hardcore pornography. So to try to figure this out, the Supreme Court justices literally sat in the basement of the Supreme Court building and watched different kinds of pornography and didn't come up with a definition. One judge simply said, I know it when I see it. Okay, so that's apparently what you do during the day if you're a Supreme Court justice. Number five, is speech harmful to a child if you tell a girl that they're really a girl when their mom says that they are a transgender boy, okay? Again, that's not a a confusing thing for Christians. That's a confusing thing with the law. This is something that you're gonna see us butting up against as Christians when we start to say, no, actually, if you're born a girl, you're a girl. And then someone will say, that is harmful speech to children. We're gonna silence you. We're gonna silence you. So be prepared. Gird your loins, church. These things are coming. Number six, again, this might not be relevant for today, but just take it for what it's worth. During COVID-19, was it unconstitutional for the government to forbid, not merely recommend churches for meeting, when the content of the religion requires them to physically meet, not just hear sermons, and when the danger in assembling was a disease that killed less than 1% of those who even got it? Notice that the Bible allows Christians to meet in each other's homes, Acts 5.42, 2.46, and even commands us to assemble together for worship, Hebrews 10.25. Again, I'm not saying I have an answer to that. I'm just saying... Do your best. Okay. Next phrase of the First Amendment. Or the rights of the or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So we went over freedom of religion and some qualifiers. We went over freedom of speech and some qualifiers. Let's talk about the freedom to assemble and the freedom to petition. Okay? Few things there. First of all, you have a right to peacefully assemble. Okay? You have a right under the Constitution to peacefully assemble. That's not rebellious. The government has said, we want you to do this. Okay? I don't know if you saw, there was this great clip, and if you've not seen it, you have to Google Ramen Boy First Amendment. Okay? There's this great clip where Chris Como is uh, on the news, he's a political commentator, and he's talking about all the protests and riots, and he said, show me in the law where it says that the, where the protests have to be peaceful. And there's this kid, and he's chomping on dry ramen noodles. He's got like sriracha sauce, and he's chomping on dry ramen noodles. And behind them, he has the definition of the First Amendment circled in a red marker, and he just goes, it's in the First Amendment. You just just gotta look it up. Like that, it's great, okay? It's great. So you have the right to assemble, but it has to be peacefully, okay? It has to be peaceful. Again, the purpose is to express your ideas, not to cause public harm. The idea is to express your ideas, not to cause harm by burning buildings and these kind of things. Number two, you have a right to correct and criticize the government publicly. Now notice, this is unique. Because America is a different kind of government than what you have in the Bible. What do you have in the Bible? You have monarchies, okay? And with a monarchy, you don't get to do this. If a king says this is the law, the Bible says you submit to that law. You don't get to express your opinion if you're under a monarchy. Well, because we're in a democracy, the form of government is different, so we still have to have a heart to submit to the government, although the way that we do so can sometimes look a little bit differently, because we live in a government that has said, if you don't like how we, your elected representatives, are doing things, please let us know. 
please criticize, please protest peacefully, please let us know. And so the government has given you this right. You're not breaking the law when you peacefully assemble, okay? You're not breaking the law when you peacefully assemble. The government has asked you to do that as a way to let them know what you'd like them to do, okay? So notice that's a little bit different than a monarchy that you would get in, uh, in the Older New Testament. Number three, the government may not require a group to list its members or deny governmental benefits to people who are part of that group, assuming that group is not involved in illegal activity. The reason, this, uh, the, reason the law is uh, set up this way is it doesn't need to be the case that if I'm, let, let's say we have a parkway protest, okay? We just really, really want to get all these ant piles killed behind the church, and we think that, you know, the government should do that because there were the government ants that crept in here and made all these ant piles. So we start this protest, and they say, I want a list of everyone in your protest. We don't have to give them that list because then what, they, what can they do? They can persecute individuals, right? However, that doesn't extend if you are doing illegal activity. If you're part of a gang or something like that, you're part of some group that is terroristic, that is constantly causing violence and these kind of things, that uh, doesn't extend to you. Number four, you do not have a right to belong to any association, but you do have a right to gather to express your opinions with a certain group or association. Here's what I mean by that. Over the past few years, one of the things that you've seen is there'll be certain Christian groups on college campuses and what the, uh, the colleges would do is they would say, you have to allow people in that Christian group who aren't Christians or people who are living in unchristian ways. You have to be exclusive. That's not what this freedom of assembly is about. It's not that you have to allow everyone in your group. It's that the government allows you to have a group. You as the group get to decide who's in and who's out. So keep that in mind. Number five, this right does not protect illegal groups or rioting. And then number six, there are limits to where you can protest. So sometimes people want to do some type of protest and the police officer says, hey, you have to move. And they say, you're infringing on my freedom. And they say, your freedom doesn't extend to standing on people's private property. Your freedom is about public areas. It's not about private areas, okay? So this does not extend to all types of private property. There are limits on where you can protest. Now, here's what's unclear to our culture and to these laws. First, what is considered a peaceful assembly? How many people have to incite violence before you can shut the whole group down? That's a great question. Let's say that we got involved in some sort of pro-life march, right, trying to be against abortion, and there was one crazy person who started, you know, burning buildings and shooting the guns up in the air or something like that. Does that mean the whole group is now an illegal group, or was that just one rogue individual being crazy? Number two, what if there is a curfew or a quarantine? Are there factors not related to the content of the protest that could overrule the right to assemble? That's something to keep in mind, okay? That's something to keep in mind. If you're a church and you're taking precautions, you can't meet in some states, but if you have 10,000 people yelling in each other's faces, that is allowed. Number three, what if your group does not cause harm or do anything illegal, but the government says that they do? What do you do then, okay? What do you do then? You see where it gets really, really tricky. Okay, Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the separation of church and state. You've probably heard this phrase used a lot. What is the separation of church and state? What does it mean? What does it not mean? Let's mention a few things here. First of all, the phrase separation of church and state doesn't actually occur in the Constitution. (gasps) As soon as somebody says there's separation of church and state, you say, I'm sorry, where's that language? And then you just watch them drool, right? That's what you do. Number two. The First Amendment is where we get that idea, specifically where it says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Number three, listen to this. In its original context, this means that the U.S. cannot have an official state church. 
like the Church of England or the Lutheran Church in Germany. The U.S. cannot favor one religious grouping over another. Here's originally the idea of not, you know, of separation of church and state. These people over in the U.S. came from England, right? And what did you have in England? You had a state church. It's called Anglicanism. It's the Church of England. And so the reason that people came over here for religious freedom is that they wanted to practice Christianity, but not Anglicanism. They thought that was too Catholic. Most of them thought that was too Catholic. They wanted to be more Puritan, purify it, hence the name, Puritan. And so these people come over, and the idea originally is we want freedom of religion because we don't want to have a state church that mandates this is the official religion of the state like uh, they had in England. Now, that also is in other places. The Lutheran Church in Germany in certain periods throughout its history has had the same thing. Uh, the uh, Russian Orthodox Church in Russia, etc. A lot of countries have kind of an official, this is our church. And the U.S. has said, we don't have that. That's what the idea of uh, separation of church and state. That we don't have America church, okay? Uh, so keep that, uh, keep that in mind. Number four, there is nothing in the Constitution that forbids individuals from mixing faith and politics or from sharing their faith in a state-related function or location. One theologian points out the following helpful facts. The U.S. Congress used, used to hold Christian worship services at the Capitol on Sundays. The Supreme Court building was also used to house church services on Sundays. Twelve of the original 14 states required religious tests for those seeking public office. Think about that. That most states originally would say, yes, freedom of religion, but if you're going to serve in this state, you've got to pass this religious test. And everybody said that was legal. After the Civil War, the first Congregational Church of Washington used the House of Representatives as a worship building. In 1863, the U.S. Senate requested that Abraham Lincoln designate an official day of national prayer and humility. In 1944, Franklin D. Roosevelt, as well as many presidents before him, went on the radio and prayed nationally for our troops and for our nation. And then lastly, this one's fascinating. When the First Amendment was implemented in 1791, it was intended only to limit the federal government and not state governments. Okay? Remember, the the U.S. Constitution is about federal powers, not state powers. So right here, I declare that this is the Church of Texas, okay? You heard it here first. The Church of Texas, the Parkway Church, same thing in my mind, okay? So it didn't apply originally to the states. It applied to to, to federal restrictions. So here's a question I want to have and have a little class discussion. Is freedom of religion something you can really have? Give me your thoughts. Here's a chance for you to, to speak up. We used to do this a lot when we were in the chapel because it was closer, but now you're so far away. But we still like to keep the engagement in this class a little bit more. Somebody give me your thoughts on whether or not you can really have freedom of religion. No, why not? You cannot have freedom of religion because different religions contradict each other. So as soon as the U.S. government says you have freedom of religion, and one says, I'm going to tell this person what they're doing is sinful and evil, and the other person says, I don't think it's sinful, this is distressing me, I'm going to sue you, you see that there's a problem. Okay? What else? Other thoughts? Any other thoughts? Correct. And Luther's also, uh, he also has a, a whole system of theology called the two kingdoms theology. Here's what he means by that, is that you as a Christian, there, there are two main powers. There's the church and there is the state. And you as a Christian are part of both. When you baptize, you do so on part of the behalf of the church. But when you go to war or whatever, you do so on behalf of the state. And he would say you always have both of those, but the state does not have a right to overrule the church. It's the church's job to tell the state what to do. The church is to be a prophet for our culture and for our government. That's the church's job when it comes to, uh, to politics. Any other thoughts? Ideally, you do have freedom, but it seems like they can redefine all 
Correct. You do, that's, that's a great way to say it. You do have freedom formally, as the Constitution would say. But when you start getting down to the nitty-gritty, you start to see that it starts to kind of erode, okay? You can't actually have true freedom of religion because then you would have to allow the human sacrifice or whatever it might be, okay? There is always a sense in which the government is gonna pick some views that it likes more than others and not pick other views, and that should terrify all of us, okay? So keep that in mind. Let your, let your hearts be light. Let your hearts be peaceful in this season. Things to watch out for. In the, let, me, let me tell you what's, here, here's what's really difficult with this, this topic. Ideally, in a perfect world, you know what you would have? You would have an absolute theocracy with Christ on the throne. How do I know that's the best form of government? Because that's what's gonna happen when Christ comes back. That's the best form of government. Ideally, in a perfect world, the laws would be laws based on Christian principles. Okay? Here's why I say that. Because if God's word is for our good, then it is for the good of everyone, including lost people. Even if you're lost, I would tell you, don't commit adultery. That will bring you more joy. Okay? Even if you're lost, I would say, don't cheat on your taxes. Every law that God has given us also applies to lost people. You say, well, Zach, what about the commandment to take communion? God's command is not to take communion. It's to take communion as a believer. And that applies to lost people too. And they're breaking that command by not being believers. So ideally, what we would do as Christians is say, we need to have a very Christianized government. That would be ideal. But because mankind is sinful, that becomes broken. That's why the framers of the Constitution do freedom of religion. So if you say, Zach, I don't like freedom of religion, I think we should have an explicitly Christian government. And I say, you got it, it'll be Catholic. And you say, well, well no, I, I didn't want that Christian government. Okay, it'll be Protestant, but Arminian. And it'll be illegal to believe in God's sovereignty over an election. Well, no, I didn't want that either, Zach. You see, as long as there are different kinds of Christians, as long as there are different denominations of Christians, you can't just have a Christian government because when you make laws about infant versus believer's baptism, which one do you pick? You run into this difficult issue, okay? Let me give you some things to watch out for in the future. Number one, your freedom of religion will slowly be taken away because it infringes on another person's unchristian beliefs. That's why I say there's not such thing as freedom of religion actually only in the Constitution you'll start to see Christians losing that freedom of speech, freedom of religion over time, the more culture becomes pagan. Number two, speech that is offensive, even if delivered in a nice tone, will be considered violence, hate speech, libel, or slander. Just know this is coming. This is going to happen. Number three, because Christianity is offensive, you will see that it will be restricted because it causes social unrest. What the government's gonna do is they're not just gonna come out and say, we're hereby taking away your freedom of religion. They're gonna base it on something else. This is what you're seeing with John MacArthur's church, okay? The government's job is not to protect your personal safety. The government's job is to protect your freedoms and your religious liberty. I heard a political candidate recently say that uh, this isn't about your liberty, it's about responsibility. And I thought, for Christians, it's about responsibility. You should be terrified anytime a government leader says something is not about your liberty. That should terrify you, okay? Number four, Christians will continue to lose rights, especially for our views on sexuality and gender. I think this will be really the first thing, we've already seen this, this will be kind of the first thing that, is, uh, that, that really is the, 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 the beginning of persecution of Christianity in America is this idea of our views on sexuality and gender. You, that movement, 20 years ago, there wasn't a nation on earth that accepted gay marriage. Four years ago? Nobody thought transgenderism was a thing. It was just called being a drag queen or something like that. It was called uh, transvestitism. And within just a few years, it's on Disney cartoons. Like that's how fast we've moved. And so notice that, that, uh, that push is not gonna slow down. Number five, 
Those who are seen as privileged classes will have their voice in silence by the culture at large. Uh, if you want to have more info on that, listen to Jeff's lecture on critical race theory and stuff on the race issue in the U.S. Number six, because of the bias of the media, social media, Google, etc., you will see Christian views and voices silenced and their positions harder to find. If you Google something, it's very hard to find views that are not the mainstream views. You have to go to like the fourth and fifth page to try to find those kind of facts. Okay, that's intentional. If you haven't watched the social media documentary, The Social Dilemma on Netflix, you need to watch it because it is excellent and it basically talks about how social media is destroying the world, okay? From people that work in social media groups, okay? It's great. They're like, I worked here, but I would never let my kids do it if they're under this age or whatever it is. So it's great. Number seven, you will see bias in who is allowed to assemble or speak out on an issue. I mentioned that. So if you hold certain kinds of protests during a pandemic, you don't have to follow the quarantine, but if you're a religious group or something, then you do. Number eight, the government will continue to restrict Christian liberties under the banner of other issues. We're seeing that right now with health concerns, but it'll be other things, okay? It'll be other things. Number nine, we will see the destruction of true democracies, which is where, which is where people are free to express their views and influence others. And you need to understand that that's the goal. For someone who's not a Christian, truth is a weapon. Truth is good for Christians. We like truth. We like logic because God doesn't contradict himself. God is true. When he says something, he doesn't mean it's opposite, okay? So those that don't love Christ, those that have an unchristian, unbiblical worldview want to get away from truth. Notice they don't want discussion. They don't want nuance. They don't want argumentation. They don't want any of that. What they want is just conform or get canceled. That's it. So we as Christians have to continue to herald truth. If you hold truth, you should never be afraid to have that conversation. If you're holding the right view, you should never be afraid of being in an argument or disagreeing with somebody or whatever it might be. Final thoughts. In a perfect world, everyone would be a Christian. The laws would be based on the Bible. But since we are ruled by sinners and pagans, it's better to have our First Amendment rights. Number one, Christians should support the freedom of speech so that we can say what we want. We realize by having freedom of speech, it allows crazy people to say what they want, but we still want to support it because we don't want it taken away from us. Christians should support the freedom of religion so that our religion doesn't get restricted. Again, if you have a state that picks a religion and it's not your religion, you're toast, okay? Or it's not the, the nuance of your religion you want, you're toast. And then number three, Christians should support the right to assemble so that we can meet together for worship and so we can petition the government when they do something wrong. So there, there's, a, there's a great quote by, uh, I think it's Winston Churchill, where he says, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other kinds right? It's a great saying. He's saying, this isn't a perfect system, but it's certainly better than socialism and these other things. That's kind of where we're at as Christians today. The First Amendment is the worst form of amendment except for all the other kinds. And so it's something that knowing that the world is broken, knowing that there are sinners, knowing that even if Christians have a majority, they're going to disagree on what Christianity is and how should it be interpreted, that it is best to uh, be in favor and supporting the First Amendment, which I think is the most important amendment and it is protected by the Second Amendment, which we'll get to in another lesson. So, Jared, come up here with some sweet questions.